I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Kate Anderson Brower, author of Elizabeth Taylor, The Grit and Glamour of an Icon. Elizabeth Taylor was the biggest star of the 20th century. She was the first actor to successfully break the multi-million dollar mark when she negotiated her starring role in Cleopatra, and she championed independent filmmaking with her Oscar-winning performance in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? She took on the AIDS epidemic when few would, and she created an iconic business, all while facing tremendous loss and waging her own private battle with chronic pain and addiction. New York Times bestselling author Kate Anderson Brower takes readers through an epic journey into the world of the real Elizabeth Taylor, exploring her undeniable and enduring influence on pop culture and modern day celebrity as we now know it. Uh, Kate is a CNN contributor, a former CBS News staffer, and a Fox News producer. She's written for the New York Times, Vanity Fair, and the Washington Post. Welcome to the show, Kate. Nice to have you on. Thanks for having me, Catherine. Well, Elizabeth died in, what, 2011? 11. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we're like, what, 12 years out. Why did you decide to write about her now? And what can we learn from her life as, as well, all of the things I mentioned in the intro? Well, you know, I, I've written about first ladies. I, I live in um, Washington, D.C., and so I, I tend to write about politics. And I was trying to think of a subject that would be captivating and interesting, but also a, a biographical figure a, that really culturally resonates today. And um, it was actually my husband who suggested I think about Elizabeth because she was married to John Warner, who was um, a Republican senator from Virginia. And it was just, it, it's just an incredible story to think of the biggest movie star of the 20th century moving to Washington. She absolutely hated it here. And, and she was kind of asked to play this supporting role uh, and really took a backseat to her husband's career. And so I thought that was just a really interesting story to tell. And I got to know Senator Warner and, you know, even though he was his, her sixth husband, they had been divorced for years, he really wanted her story to be told to a younger audience. And he put me in touch with her children, who put me in touch with the wonderful um, people at her estate. And they said, you know, they, they were interested in, work, in opening her archive to me and letting me go through her private letters and diaries that were 7,000 entries. So it was kind of a dream for a journalist really to have this open book and to feel like I was trying to get into her head really and get and get the reader inside her head. So how does it feel when you have access, which you did, and the approval of the estate and you got to talk to her closest friends and families and learn all these intimate details? How, how does that feel for you as an author, as a journalist? I mean, do you feel like you're kind of like, I don't want to use the word prying, but all this, all, you know, her private life is open to you. Um, So what was your reaction? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that it it was tricky talking. She has four children. And so talking about what it was like for them and the good times and the hard times with their mother, um, when, you know, she was an addict, she was addicted to opioids. Um, And, you know, they were often, you know, sent to schools in Europe and kind of shuffled between friends of hers. But she did that to try to protect them from her life. So I think that some of the more sensitive topics that they were willing to talk about, I I try to address really, um, you know, honestly, 
and openly, but also give them a little bit of privacy still because it is their mother, right? And they've had to share her with the world for their entire lives. And I think it's really difficult for the children of a major celebrity like Elizabeth Taylor to kind of talk about what that celebrity means. And their mother was one thing to them and another thing to the world. Yeah. We know more about, uh, before you wrote the book, of course, uh, her presentation to the world and what she did, philanthropist, charitable actress, what she was one of the first women. Uh, I don't know if I read that in the intro. Yeah. To make the break the million dollar mark for mm-hmm. women, uh, mm-hmm. which was in her role of Cleopatra, which I actually saw as a teenager uh, in the mm-hmm. <laughs> backseat of a car with my boyfriend at a drive-in. It was a great, great. Oh, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it did. I still kept up my, you know, I was interested in two things, I guess, at the time. But anyway, um, yeah. <laughs> so her kids. Well, Elizabeth like, would have been yeah. fine with that. She was very passionate yeah. <laughs> and she loved love, you know. Exactly. She loved love and and she loved getting out of it. Let's talk about those husbands, because that always fascinated me. And the last one was what? Larry Fortensky, right? Um, Yeah, he passed away, actually. It's interesting. I had him on my list of people to interview, but unfortunately, he passed away a while ago. And she took care of him, even in the final years before he died, after they were divorced. She would be sending him checks every month. Um, I kind of came to see her. So she was married eight times to seven men. She married Richard Burton twice. And one of the most interesting parts of the book, I think, is these letters, these very passionate letters that have never been published between Elizabeth and Richard, um, which are, you know, very intimate uh, letters about their physical love, but also letters when they're fighting and letters describing... um, she wrote this really interesting diary entry where she talks about getting married for a second time. And, you know, she just is very funny. She wrote to him one line was, I hated you for a while there. You were so bloody cold and unresponsive. Even your voice became flat. So English, your eyes as dead as an alligator's without an appetite. So this is her telling Richard, you know, I want to get married again to you and you don't want it as much as I do. And I'm really frustrated. And I think that that's a feeling that a lot of women can feel or men with their partners, whomever, that they want something from them and maybe their partner doesn't want it as much. And so a lot of it, I thought, was universal when she's writing to him or he's writing to her. It's like this... um the fear and the doubt about their second marriage and whether it would last and their vulnerability because they did love each other so much. I thought that was beautiful. Well, the passion, I mean, there was always that, as you're describing it, obviously, but the passion between her and Richard Burton, the love, the hate, uh, all of those emotions. And then each each one of these husbands, I mean, John Warner, Senator, very different, right? I mean, that's a whole different kind of a marriage. And then Larry Fortensky is uh, the the 180 from John Warner, let's say. So where, yeah, where was she at each, I guess, at each juncture with each one of these husbands? Because her choice of husbands reflects kind of where she is or what she's doing at the time where she is emotionally. Yeah. You're right that they're all very different, which is striking. Um, I think that, you know, and her sons, uh, 
her son, Chris Wilding, who is the son of Michael Wilding, her second husband, and he was a British actor, you know, a gentleman. And Chris told me, he said, listen, my parents could never have stayed together because my mother thought it was boring. She didn't want a gentleman. She wanted, now, now in the book, I talk about, um, for the first time, abuse that she suffered at the hands of her father as a young child star. You know, she was making more money than he was when she was nine years old, right? And he um, actually hit her so hard that she said she had locked off the rest of her life because of it. So she had this strange relationship with men, and, and I'm sure that there are psychological roots. Uh, you know, I'm not a psychologist, but in her childhood from this, where she was physically abusive towards some of her husbands, and they were physically violent with her, like Mike Todd, like Richard Burton, um, she craved a very strong-willed man who could match her pound for pound. And I think that she just didn't want an easy, uh, you know, life. And when Richard Burton was trying not to drink, she actually gave him gin because she thought he hated gin and she, she just couldn't stand to see him suffering. And so she would give him alcohol. So there was that also codependent um, addict behavior that was going on there. So it's really complicated. All these marriages, um, I think, were a way for her to escape being Elizabeth Taylor and turning herself into Mrs. John Warner, Mrs. Mike Todd, into something else. Well, she was an actress, so I suppose that fits into her personality, right? She could be, as you say, be, be a Mrs. John Warner or a Mrs. Larry Fortensky. What about the children? Because you met, there are, uh, she has four children. And I'm I'm assuming they all had a, yeah, different relationship with her just as her husbands did. Are there any Mm -hmm. that are, that she was closest to and why? And others who may not feel the same way or may not even feel close to their mother? Uh. I think they were all close to her. One of them is adopted, um, Maria, and she, you know, probably has the most challenging relationship because she's adopted by um, Elizabeth and Eddie Fisher. And then when that marriage kind of imploded, um, Richard Burton was then her father. And actually, Maria told this incredible story about how she, you know, she was at a dinner party in New York. She was in her 20s, and she was seated across from Eddie Fisher. And Eddie Fisher looked at her and said, you were supposed to be mine. You know, so think of the, like, she hadn't seen him for decades, and he adopted her. But when the divorce happened, he basically just gave up on her. So there's a lot of trauma there. I would say her, I would say Elizabeth's son, Chris, is the one who's closest to her, um, and he, you know, would visit her a lot in L.A. and really help take care of her later on in her life. And now the next generation, the grandchildren, uh, were any, any of them, what was the uh, relationship to Elizabeth? Well, I worked really closely. Every, every week I had a phone call with the trustees of Elizabeth's estate. And so you have to also remember she had this huge business empire with her perfumes. And then she had the largest private jewelry collection in the world that sold at Christie's for more than $150 million. So she had, you know, a 33-carat diamond ring, a famous ring called the Krupp. Um, that was auctioned off for millions. So the, the trustees of her estate are also looking out for her finances. 
and her brand. And one of them is uh, lovely um, Quinn, who is the grandson of Mike Todd. And so uh, he was very helpful in the whole process, as were Tim Mendelson, who was Elizabeth's good friend and assistant for two decades, and her lawyer, Barbara Berkowitz. So these were the three people who I talked to all the time. And it was really interesting because I think they evolved over time and how they wanted to talk about her, like Quinn. Um, Quinn has like a very sweet relationship with his grandmother. You know, even when things were tough, he could go up and visit her in her bedroom when nobody else could, you know, when she was kind of in a bad mood or depressed, sleeping all day, the grandchildren could always have access to her. So that was really special, getting that insight into Elizabeth Taylor as a grandmother. Now her addiction. I mean, we all know, we sort of heard about it, read about it, but some of the stuff that we, as uh, you know, her audience, it was kind of sensational. So how did she, I guess, evolve and what precipitated her, her becoming addicted and at what point in her life did that happen? I mean, she was very young when she was at MGM. She was a child star, household name by the time she was 12, and it was a national velvet. And at MGM, they would give their stars, you know, uppers and downers. Uh, even the kids, they would give them, you know, Judy Garland's a famous example of that, where if they had to shoot for long hours, they would give them, you know, pills to keep them awake. If they had to sleep at strange times of the day, they would give them pills. So so I think it started then. That's my understanding of when she became addicted to pills. And that was always her biggest problem. I think the alcohol was more of a social thing for her. According to her children, it was really the pills that she never kicked. And it got so bad that, um, you know, her housekeeper told me that they would not want to wake her up in the morning. It would be like 11 or 12 and nobody would want to go into her bedroom because they were afraid that she had passed away in the night. She just had such a huge capacity for um, opioids, painkillers. She had a, a back injury from National Velvet, so she was in a lot of pain. Um, but she was an addict, and I, I, I think it's hard to get at the sense of what the hole was in her heart, in her life, that she was trying to fill. I think there was a great loneliness there that she never found her one true love. And when Richard died, and I think he was her one true love, that he was impossible to replace. He was this larger than life character. um, And there was just nobody like him in the world for her. But Howard Hughes now, Howard Hughes, he's a larger than life guy who wanted to I, <laughs> marry her, I guess. But so what happened? But that was not something that ever happened. And what, so what was her re- relationship with Howard Hughes? Yeah, I mean, Howard Hughes dated, you know, Catherine Hepburn, all these yeah. huge stars. And he essentially was obsessed with Elizabeth. You know, he wanted to buy her. He he thought he could buy her. He. Uh, called her up and said, you know, how much money do you want? I'll, I'll give you whatever you want and send his assistant with a briefcase full of cash to her hotel room. And um, this was a period when she was unmarried um, in her early 20s and he actually flew. She was she was um, sunbathing with some friends in Palm Springs and he flew and landed on the lawn of this estate 
and he sprinkled a bunch of loose diamonds on top of her and she had her bathing suit on and she just jumped up kind of in shock and the diamonds all fell on the lawn and Howard Hughes was on his hands and knees trying to pick up these loose diamonds and Elizabeth was just just aghast that he would think she could be bought you know um she wasn't attracted to him. She had to have a physical attraction to someone. And he had this reputation for really being a ladies' man. And she did have a relationship with Frank Sinatra early on, and she did get pregnant. Um, and he, you know, uh, she just, he apparently insisted that she get an abortion um, and arranged for her to have an abortion in Mexico. So, I mean, she had a lot of complications in her life. And I was really surprised to learn that before she married Nikki Hilton, when she was a teenager, she had to have a virginity test. And her mother actually went with her to the doctor to make sure she was still a virgin. And she was resented that the rest of her life, that her mother wouldn't have believed her. And it was so humiliating. Um, so her sexuality, I think she early on claimed it in a way that few other women did. You know, she was unapologetic about being married so many times and dressing how she wanted to and just being this body woman. And I think that's um, kind of liberating. And she was kind of ahead of her time, I think. She was a feminist, but she never would have called herself a feminist. She just lived the part. That's who she was. She didn't mm-hmm. have to yeah, label herself mm-hmm. or define herself. I always wondered what the attraction was to Eddie Fisher. What? <laughs> <laughs> because he <Me> too. <laughs> tell me about that. Because I mean, uh, talk about opposites. Uh, Richard Burton and Eddie Fisher. Yeah. Yeah, Eddie Fisher was, you know, um, Mike Todd's best friend, and so she called him Edna for the rest of her life. She and Debbie Reynolds would make fun of it because Debbie and Eddie Fisher were married, and famously, Elizabeth supposedly broke up their marriage, but that wasn't really the case. Their marriage was already in dire straits at the time. And um, I think for for Elizabeth, Eddie was the one husband she really did not like. She really, you know, that's why she called him Edna. Um, and she married him as a way to um, keep Mike Todd alive. And she even said that later. She took Todd Fisher aside, Eddie's, um, Eddie and Debbie's son, and they... You know, she was in her um, 70s at the time, and she was visiting Debbie Reynolds and Carrie Fisher at their house, and Todd was there, and he told me that Elizabeth said, you know, I'm so sorry for what I did to your family. I was just selfish, and I needed somebody, because Mike Todd died in a plane crash after a year of marriage. She absolutely adored him, and she was 26 with three children to take care of, Um, And I think she felt like she needed a man in her life. She needed security. So that's what Eddie Fisher was all about. You know, Kate, I wonder, I always wonder why celebrities, and you mentioned, or you were talking about Howard Hughes and trying to buy her. Well, she didn't need to be bought. She had her own money. Uh, That Mm -hmm. wasn't something that impressed her. Why do celebrities, and maybe because she was in a different era, I don't know, but why the need to get married? Why would you have to go through the process of marrying all, you could be with all of these men and, uh, but not necessarily get married, then have to extricate yourself from the marriage uh, because yeah, (laughs) that's the question. I mean, that's a really good point today, but back then, 
you know, you really couldn't do that. I mean, the studio was controlling their lives so much that they had to get married. If you were, you know, gay at the time, for instance, in a relationship, or if you were a woman who was seen as like, you know, sleeping around, they would fire you. I mean, I don't think Elizabeth was at risk with MGM because she made them so much money, but um, she had these old fashioned values. And she always said she got married so many times because she would never sleep with anybody unless she was married to them, (laughs) even though that's not really true. true. But she, you know, she was in these kind of, I think she had this old fashioned mindset, these very traditional values. And then, um, but yet she was willing to kind of go through husbands as a way to fulfill this idea that you need to be married. You need to be married. You need to have children and a family. And it's just, you know, it's the 1950s and 60s. She was born in 1932. So it's just a different era. Well, and the other thing you mentioned, the studios had a lot of control over your life. That's true. I mean, the image, yeah, what you had to project to to, uh, your audiences. Now, AIDS, I mean, she did so much work for AIDS. How did she get involved in that? I mean, she did some really, uh, I guess. Well, I mean, she was the first. That's the thing that's so interesting about her to me is that she was the first major celebrity influencer. And she did that with her company, with her, her black diamonds, I mean, white diamonds, rather. And then she had her AIDS activism, which she took on as a second career. She devoted the last three decades of her life to it at a time when, at the beginning, nobody was really stepping up in a very public way. And she was close to Ronald Reagan. They were um, friends in Hollywood. And she used that relationship with both Ronald Reagan and Nancy Reagan and just launched this pressure campaign. She had so many friends who were gay, both on screen and off screen. Montgomery Clift was one of her best friends. Rock Hudson was one of her dear friends. And she got involved at a time when um, people were telling her, you know, in 1984, that, you know, don't get involved. This could ruin your career. And Frank Sinatra wasn't willing to help at first. Michael Jackson wasn't willing to help. Um, and then suddenly she finds out that Rock Hudson has AIDS. She thought he had cancer. And then she finds this out before the rest of the world. And then the rest of the world cares. And she thought, God, this is so terrible that just now that a famous person has AIDS, now it's not a problem. So she was on board, you know, trying to help people who are not famous. And one thing that really struck me was what she did behind the scenes to kind of ran our own Dallas Buyers Club, where she was funneling money to Project Inform, this group in San Francisco that was doing experimental AIDS treatments. And she had these suitcases of cash on her kitchen counter. Um, And she, you know, it was illegal at the time what she was doing, but it was so desperate and nobody was doing anything. You know, the first cases were in 81. The president didn't talk about it formally until 87. And that was because of her. So it's really tremendous. Yeah. I mean, at that time, people were afraid to uh, hold, touch anybody who mm-hmm. had AIDS or I mean, all of these myths that, you know, that had to, that, that, that occurred right in the beginning of the epidemic. And uh, she was instrumental in really, uh, I guess, 
involving the public and mm-hmm. really, yeah, and, and that, I mean, that was Definitely. critical. Yeah, that was key. That was, she's quite an amazing woman. So, okay, you have all, after writing this book, and all I can think of is here's this woman, she has addictions, she has husbands, she gets involved in unpopular causes. Where does she get all that energy? I mean, when you finish writing this book, do you think about that? Like, how did she, she died? What, yes, all the time, yeah. all the time. I thought she lived so many lives in one life. You know, she was 79 when she died, but here she had been famous since she was 12. And, um, and she had reinvented herself so many times. And I mean, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? Um, she won an Oscar for that role and she was tremendous in it. So she was also in a, in a place in the sun. She was a tremendous actress. And I think that she, she had um, times in her life when she was very active, when she was married to Richard, they were doing a lot of movies, making a lot of money. Some of the movies weren't so hot. They weren't that great. Honestly, she didn't even think they were that great, but they needed the money. But there were periods of her life where, she wasn't an actress anymore. And she would say, you know, I don't even know why I'm famous. Like I, I, I'm, I'm not, I shouldn't be famous, but yet the paparazzi were following her around. So her personal life became the fame. And that's to me really interesting. Like she was the first major celebrity in a couple with Liz and Dick, you know, and, and then she was the butt of Joan Rivers' jokes for so long. And she was, you know, she gained weight. And she was, there's a lot of negative stories out there, too. But she she survived all of it. And there were times when she was depressed. And, you know, her assistant told me that she would sleep all day. She was an insomniac. And she would talk to Michael Jackson and other celebrity friends at, you know, 2 and 3 in the morning who also couldn't sleep. Um I think she went through periods of time where she was really lonely. So she, I mean, she packed a lot in, but there were times in the eighties and nineties when she was a little bit more, um, reclusive, I think. Yeah. And we saw her in a wheelchair at the end. I guess she had Mm -hmm. scoliosis. She had physical issues. We only have a couple minutes left. I mean, this is a great book. Uh, I just, I want to obviously mention the title again, Elizabeth Taylor, the grit and glamor of an icon. And I've been talking to the author of this book, Kate Anderson Brower, uh, recommended highly. So Kate, give us a website or websites we can go to, to buy the book and to get more information about you. I mean, Sure. Um, I mean, it's on Amazon, Target, um, Barnes and Noble, and I have a website, katebrower.com. Um, I also have a Twitter, although I don't use it too often, but it's at Kate Brower. And um, I have to say, I mean, I really fell in love with Elizabeth working on this book, but it is I was not coming into it as a fan. So I, I always thought she was beautiful and fascinating, but I think when you really get to know her, she's kind of mesmerizing. And I hope that readers feel like they get into her head a little bit. And, you know, at the end of her life, she was very close to Colin Farrell, the actor. So there was this whole other side to her, too. She had this romantic friendship with him where they flirted a lot with each other. So, you know, she had uh, many loves and she never gave up on love. And I think that's a wonderful thing. Well, you fell in love with her also, so maybe mm-hmm. now we need to read the book, and we need to fall in love with her uh, either uh, over again, or you know, you've got a whole generation or generations really of uh, of an audience who don't know her well. Thanks so much for being on the show. Great talking to you today. 
Thank you, Catherine. It was fun. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. (laughs) 